0: The book of Proverbs tells us that money can dwindle and money can grow. It tells us that money can deceive and money can fly, money can be stolen, and it can also steal life away. Money can protect and poverty can pounce, but wages also can bring life. All of this we learn in the book of Proverbs. We're also told that money does so much more than you and I actually realize It. It also does so much more to us than we often realize. It can be a blessing that sets us free in the service of the Lord and kindness towards others, or it can be a cruel master that actually enslaves us. In our passage today, the love of money is going to come into focus. Uh, so if you will, head on over to James chapter 5. We're going to be beginning the final chapter of the book of James today. And as we do so, don't forget that James has been talking about already. Leading up to this is about pride and humility, about uh, presumptuous planning, and, and this is a built onto to that. It's, it's connected to it. And in one sense, it's this, oh yeah, and also sort of moment, and uh, another sense, it's, it makes perfect sense that it would come after the pride and the humility. Let's read, and, and God willing, we'll, we'll see what that looks like. Uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read all the way through verse 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud and crying are crying out against you. And the cities of the harvesters have... The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the, the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have, you, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have, we have learned in your word that all scripture is breathed out by you, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we believe that is true of this strange passage as well. And so, Lord, enlighten our minds and soften our hearts to receive whatever you have to teach us from your word today. Uh, May our lives be transformed and your name be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So right at the beginning, as we've done in previous weeks, right, we're asking this question, who exactly is James addressing here? And so far, every time we've come to that question, it's been Christians in the church that he's addressing. And so is that what we see here again? Is this rich Christians that he's addressing? After all, right, they're the only ones who are going to be in the room where this is going to be read, the worship gathering, to actually hear it. So why in the world would you say stuff to someone who can't hear it? Uh, plus, the, the temptation, right, uh, it might be to Christians, though, because the temptation to embrace a, a, a lifestyle of, of the soci- you know, your socioeconomic peers, that's a very tempting thing, and it's not beyond our own temptations. A- in which case, right, the injustices that James speaks of here, these are common business practices of the wealthy in the first century, not good, but common practices. Uh, however, uh, there is significant reason to believe that James is actually addressing rich unbelievers here. Yes, people not actually in the room. And, and for one reason, right, is he's been addressing us as brothers, brothers, brothers. We've seen that all throughout the book. Uh, and he's going to say brothers again in verse 7 as if he's getting right back on track and changing his, his audience again. But in our passage today, James just calls them, you rich. There, there's no terms of endearment here that, that signifies that. More, more significantly, though, James never calls for repentance in this. He, he doesn't say, here's what you're doing, repent of this. He, he says, you know, like we saw last week, right, it, you know, Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. Uh, here, James tells the rich, just weep and howl, because divine judgment is coming upon you. And, and, and again, why in the world would you address people who aren't in the room? Let me try to explain what's, what's going on here. James, James is speaking here like an Old Testament prophet. And prophets often denounce unbelieving nations around them. Uh, And, uh, you know, the the prophet Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 13, 6, he says, Wail, you recognize that word, right? Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty will come. He is talking about Babylon when he says that. But when he says it, the only people that are hearing it is Israel. And the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Obadiah, Amos, they all did the exact same thing where they would proclaim judgment on a foreign nation but pronounce that judgment to Israel only. And so what James is doing here is he is speaking with this prophetic-like zeal against these unbelieving rich who hoard money and oppress the poor. Um, but again, right, why does James say this to people who don't fit that category? And, and it's a real question, right, because you and I, if you've ever been in one of those meetings where you, you have to show up and you're sitting in the meeting and you realize real quickly, you know what, this has nothing to do with me. They said, uh, why am I in this meeting, sitting through this, this have nothing to do with it,? right? You, you almost want to come to this and say, James, what does this have to do with me? I'm not even in this department. Why am I here? Now, the, the reason that the prophets did this and the reason that James does this is the exact same. It's, uh, but let me give you four reasons. First, it assures God's people that, that the success, success of these nations and the oppression of these, uh, these poor folks or, or by these rich folks, it will not last forever. That's number one. Second, it assures us that God knows our suffering uh, and will, in his own good timing, do something about it. It doesn't go unheard. Third, it it reveals to us God's standards. Right? It makes real clear what is expected of us in regards to finances and and employment and things of that nature. And finally, James, and this is probably the strongest one, James is proclaiming judgment on unbelieving rich folks who aren't going to hear it, uh, right? And they're not going to hear it because they're, Right? They're not in the room, they're away, maybe on their, their yacht you know, sipping crystal in the Caribbean or something like that. And, and the simple reason that he's doing it then is because he knows that while you and I are sitting here on a Sunday morning worshiping the Lord week after week, week after week in the life we live, there's a part of us that would like to be in the Caribbean with them on that yacht sipping a little bit of crystal. And, and he knows we, we, we tend to envy the rich is what it comes down to. He, he knows that we all want a mansion with a view. We want a, a fancy new car. We want a vacation that is Instagram-worthy of taking pictures of. We, we want brand new tech. We want new clothes. We want all the toys of that sense. And, and the list goes on and on. We, we want to be like the unbelieving rich that we see out in the world and is put on the, out in media all the time. Right? On some level, there is an envy of, of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And, you know, we envy people like Taylor Swift and Mark Cuban and LeBron James. All these people that seem to have money and, and get to live a life of luxury. And as we envy them, maybe we think, I don't want to be like them exactly. I just want a little more luxury than I have. Just, just a little nicer stuff here and there. But there's always that temptation. And so, so James and ultimately the Lord God wants you to see the full picture. Don't just envy one aspect of the life without missing what's really going on. He wants us to see this eternal truth that while these God-rejecting wealthy folks are living their best life now, their, their future, eternally speaking, is not so bright. What they really need... What they really, deeply, absolutely need, their wealth can't buy them, and their prideful money, love and hearts can't receive anyway. And and so instead of zoning out or or playing solitaire like you do in those pointless meetings that you get drug in, and you're not in that department, right? How about we actually learn something from this prophetic judgment against these unbelieving rich? Because we know the same temptation, the thing we see as a reality in them is often an actual temptation to our own hearts as well. Um, So... Let's have a, you know, and there's a lot of general things to learn about money here. Uh, so let's, let's have a look at that. And, and before we do that, I do want to say this at the beginning. Um, let me remind you that the scripture nowhere, not even in this passage, condemns being rich in and of itself. That's not what's being condemned at all, right? The Bible is full of people who were incredibly rich and also God-fearing. That is, they love the Lord deeply. People like Abraham, people like Job and David and Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? And, and Lydia was probably wealthy, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, right, that's the rich guy that, that bought the tomb that Jesus was buried in and, and later was resurrected from. If the Lord, you know, has given you wealth to any degree, I don't want you to hear this and feel guilt for that. Do not be ashamed of that blessing. Now, it's going to teach you things about that and the way that we obtain that, but do not feel guilt for that. Just be aware that that blessing can become an idol to your heart. As, as Richard Foster said, and I think this was in the quotes in your, your reflection, Wealth is a dangerous thing. The entire biblical tradition underscores that truth, which is why you and I should treat, we should treat finances, we should treat money like the way we treat fire or the way we treat electricity, right? It's this great tool. It's got good value. It's important, but it's also very dangerous if it is handled improperly. And and so again, James is speaking of a a godless, money-loving person when he proclaims that first line that we see there, come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then in verses 2 and 3, James condemns this hoarding of money. Uh, I know there's a TV show. I've not actually seen it, but people have told me about it many times called Hoarders. Uh, and the way it's been explained to me is, I should have looked it up, the uh, way it's been explained is is people in their houses just have collectibles and trinkets and, and collections of newspapers and all this stuff just stuffed into their cabinets and raising to the ceilings, and, and that's the way that they hoard these things. And we look at that and we see that, right? I pulled up the cars before and they'd see this hoarding to the ceiling and I'm disgusted by it, right? You, you have this sense where you look at that person and you think, oh, there is something seriously wrong with that person. Why are they doing that? Why, why would anyone hoard like this? But But now uh, imagine for just a second, instead of trinkets, instead of the trash in the car to the ceiling, instead of the cabinets filled with bobbleheads or whatever it might be, right? Uh, Imagine that that what they're hoarding is actual dollar bills stuffed in the cabinets and up to the ceiling, right? That's not as gross to us. We're like, yeah, we're going to swim in that like Scrooge McDuck. We're not grossed out by that. You know, when hoarding is in our bank accounts or our, invest, our investment portfolios, we suddenly, we don't even call it hoarding anymore. It's, that's, you know, no amount of money in there could ever be relabeled as hoarding. And, and this is not to say that savings and investing are wrong to do. Again, let me walk that back just a little bit. Uh, the book of Proverbs encourages us uh, such to save, right? You remember that great story about commending the ant because he stores up food for the summer, in the summer, for the winter? Uh, it's wise to have savings hoarding wealth is 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 more about this mindset that comes over us in regards to our money it's and it's not black and white and i think that's one of the reasons we struggle with it so much it's it, it's something that has to be discerned in our hearts what's going on uh remember early in the uh, the pandemic days there was a shortage of toilet paper and everyone's began to panic and and there were a few people that had maybe a couple weeks worth of toilet paper and they were willing to share it with those in need. And, you know, that, that, was, that was wise saving of toilet paper and using it wisely. But there were others in our culture, right, that, that had stockpiled like a years or two worth of toilet paper in their house, fearing, you know, if everything breaks down, at least they'll be able to wipe their butt in the weeks ahead. But, but they're just unwilling to share it. This is mine. It's just for me. And, and that's hoarding. And and finding the line between those two is not always real easy, again, because there's a discernment of the heart that has to happen. Um, Sam Albury says this, he says, saving is not ungodly if it is for godly purpose, such as providing for ourselves so that we are not a burden on others, and providing for others. Wealth is to be used, not amassed. And and so the picture in verse 2 is of of hoarding riches, and, and he's got this picture, right, that they're rotting. And that the moths have eaten all these fancy clothes of theirs. And in other words, all these things that they think are so valuable, so importantly, are, 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 going, are, are going to be absolutely worthless in, in the bigger scheme of things. And then in verse 3, the picture is of, of hoarded gold and silver being corroded. And that corrosion is this evidence that will be against them of having selfishly hoarded wealth. Uh, it's kind of like when God gave the bread-like manna uh, every day to Israel in the wilderness, right? And they'd wake up, and there it is. And, and, and they were told explicitly, don't, don't try to save that stuff. Don't put it in the, you know, don't save it for the next day. God will provide more. And anyway, some people took it, right? And there was stuff in everything. Their pockets are full of this stuff. Um, and, and they did it because they did not trust that God was going to provide for them the next day, right? That's the reason you and I want to hoard things like finances, that, well, what happens if everything falls apart? I need enough money for the next 50 years. Uh, something like that. Now, now, the next morning, there was clear evidence for, for the Israelites then, um, any of them that had actually hoarded manna because overnight it had rotted in their pockets. It was, it was worm-infested at that time. It was absolutely worthless. No one's going to touch that nasty stuff, right? And, and this is the evidence because you're like, you, you, were you hoarding stuff yesterday? No, I did not hoard anything. Yeah, you did. We can see it rotting in your pockets right now. It's evidence against them. Maybe they should have... Hoarded McDonald's french fries, those things never rot. Um, Which kind of reminds me actually, right? I I mean, any of you a chemist? I know we usually call out mathematicians in here. Do you do chemistry? Sure? All right, maybe you'll know this, right? Something in verse 3 might bother you if you know anything about uh, chemistry, right? See that word corroded in the ESV? Uh, The Greek term is literally rusted. Uh, But does gold or silver actually rust? Tim says no. He's the closest thing we have to a chemist right now that I know of. Uh, right, no, it, it's not. If it is pure, right, if it's actually pure, it does not rot, it does not rust. And, and this information, it's not modern information. We didn't just discover this recently. James knows that gold doesn't rust. He's not being uh, ignorant here. It's, it, it's really strengthening his point B- because it, it really drives this. You know, hey, you know, money-trusting folks, what you thought was gonna be valuable forever, what you thought could not corrode, what you thought could not rest and be ruined, right? That stuff that you, that, that treasure that you stored up was, was earthly it wasn 't heavenly, and in the eternal scheme it 's now rusting it 's not as solid and, and internal as you thought it was be your, your gold might as well just be some base metal um, and, and so when James says here in verse three right that this is this is evidence that will will, will eat your flesh like fire now understand they, these are general statements about divine judgment that 's coming upon them and it's coming upon them because they have trusted in money instead of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ now verse Three ends with these words, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Do you know when the last days are? Uh, The last days are the days that the people that James is writing to, it's the days that they were living in, but it's also the days that you're living in. And in our mindset, we think, that's a really long last days. That's like the end of the Lord of the Rings kind of last days. Um, And and, and here's the deal. It began when Jesus came and and dwelt among us as crucified, resurrected from the dead, Right, that's when these last days begin. These last days will end when Jesus returns in triumphant uh, power. Right, and uh, and judgment is what's going to come at that time. Right, Jesus has come and brought salvation. Next, Jesus will come and bring judgment and fully realize redemption for those who trust in Christ with faith. So, 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 what have these rich folks have been been doing in these last days that he's speaking to? They've been storing up treasure plain and simple, and not the good kind of treasure that Jesus speaks about. You remember uh, Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then two verses later, right, Jesus says, you cannot love, you cannot serve God and money. Now every time you hear that understand this that's not a challenge to you to try to do both he's not saying it's unwise to do that it's, it's you can't it's impossible you cannot possibly both love God and love your money uh, your heart will be divided your affections will be split you, that's why we are to give our hearts not part of it to the Lord but wholeheartedly to the Lord always uh, David Gibson asks this he says you want to know where your heart is do you? He says, then look at where your money is. It, it is dispersed, or is it dispersed to the great good of the gospel in the world, or is it gathering the equivalent of digital dust in an online vault somewhere? I think we hear things like that, and it hurts. Um, it hurts. But, but, but earthly treasure can actually be used for laying up heavenly treasure that Jesus speaks about as well. As, as John Calvin said, God did not appoint gold to go to waste or clothes to be eaten by moss, but intended them to sustain human life. They do have value. They do have purpose. And and so steward uh, the wealth that God has blessed you with in ways that serve the Lord's purposes. And there's a variety of things that that would fall under that. Now, I want to combine verses 4 and 6. So we're going to skip that right here and go to verse 5 this morning first. Uh, So look at verse 5. It says this. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. that little phrase on the earth rightly draws us back to those words of jesus in matthew 6 right the the uh, treasure on earth versus the treasure in heaven uh and if we're brutally honest money tends to make us self-obsessed i think to some degree or a lot or little all of us to some degree that is true right any any money that's not already tied up in in bills we almost exclusively spend on ourselves that's what we think it's there for uh, whether we're talking fancy coffees or Apple watches or new clothes or whatever it is you're into, um, <clears throat> this verse five hit me uh, hard this week because I had kind of written it off at this point as okay, he's he's speaking prophetically to these unbelieving unbelie- uh, unbelieving rich people, right? And so that's that's not me. So he's not speaking to me. What do I have to learn from this? Uh, and and. And the Lord in his providence absolutely mocked me for that. I was sitting on the front porch and I was actually researching verse 5 here with my AirPod Prozen, probably should add that, Uh, and and when I see movement out of the corner of my eye, because I didn't hear him show up, it's it's Lee, it's our mailman, and here he's walking at me with these five packages from Amazon Prime. And we're like, oh, okay. So I thank him, I go inside, and I sit back down and I I read this verse again. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And there's that moment where you just think James, James is the worst. <laughs> J- James has become to me like one of those people that I'm not sure I actually like, but I I like that he's in my life because because he calls me to sanctification, he calls me to a, a, a godliness in life that I actually need, and that seems to be what James has been for us week after week after week. Um, and, you know, so that, you know that just mocked me right there. And so you know, sometime this week. I really want to encourage you to do this. Come back to verse 5. Like, Make a little mark, put yourself a note, whatever it is. Come back to verse 5 and I want you to make it a question and I want you to think through this and pray through it. And you might do it like this, right? You turn it into a question this way. In what ways have I lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence? What, is, what in my life looks like that? Uh, and, and, and to keep this again and just in balance with, with all that God teaches in His Word not just one little section, right? James is James is not saying you can't enjoy the good things uh, of this world that God gives you. He's not saying you can't have the Apple Watch. I have one, right? It's right here. Um, Do enjoy his good gifts. Do so with contentment, with a a grateful heart, right? Those are the things we're we're trying to get to, and and that we're not just so self-indulgent with regards to what he's blessed us with. Now, now verse 5 ends with this prophet-like word picture. It's kind of beautiful in a creepy way. Uh, You have fattened your hearts in a day in a day of slaughter. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You understand that? Um, you, you've seen those cattle that are out in the fields, and they're grazing. We drive past them on the way to school every morning, and our kids are like, oh, they're so cute. There's babies, and you know, you just see this life they're living, and they eat, and they eat, and they eat, and, and, and you know, at some point in their life, though, uh, they're getting fatter and fatter, and when it comes closer to the time of slaughter, they get fatter and fatter, and, and, and they're just completely oblivious to it. Someone actually did research on this, like Watching their brains, do so they stress out when they're going into the slaughterhouse? And they don't. They're just like, oh, this is neat. Look at this. And, and next thing they know, right, they're in the slaughterhouse being turned into ribeye or whatever steak they're going to be made into. That, that's the image that James is painting for us here, right, of, of the rich person who, who, you know, who's just enjoying his or her riches with no thought of God until suddenly death comes and with it the judgment of the Lord. They hadn't thought about it. They were oblivious to it as they enjoyed all their riches. Now eternity is coming and every soul will meet the judge. Now is the time to trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, And so like I said earlier, right, we put four and six together because they both speak of how these self-indulgent rich people have trampled on others in order to make their money. Uh, They hired people to do labor and maybe they didn't pay the people or maybe they didn't pay pay them as much as they had agreed to or maybe they just kept putting them off and didn't pay them until much later. You know, and due to their, their, their poverty, <clears throat> the, the laborers had no power to actually challenge this. There, there's nothing to push against. They couldn't even go on Judge Judy, right? There's nothing they can do about this. And, and, and God's law has always had these stipulations for, for the poor in, in the culture. Things, are, uh, things like leaving the, the remnant, right? When you go harvest, don't take everything. Leave some behind so the poor people can come and, and collect it afterwards. Things like uh, Deuteronomy 24:14, which says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against, against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin, right? He's going to cry out to the Lord for you. And, and, and James is, is telling us that this law has been ignored by these rich folks. They haven't cared anything about this. They haven't actually done this. And, and so James confirms, right? And look at verse 44, not 44, just 4. Um, <clears throat> the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They have cried out and the Lord has heard them. Heard them. Their treatment of, of the poor has not gone unnoticed by the Lord. And, and what's this look like in our age? I think it's hard to translate. we you know, uh, not many of us are hiring workers to harvest things for us, right? Uh, here's what it looks like. Business owners certainly need to figure out how they make a profit. That's important. No one denies that. But they also need to be careful not to exploit their employees. Uh, as Christians, we are called to conduct business Uh, in a God-honoring way, which means we we never violate God's law, uh, never violate his word, and then hide behind those words that are so often used in business today, right? It's just business. Whatever I just did that's horrible in the eyes of my Lord, hey, it's just business. It's okay because it's business. You can't just say that. And Dan Doriani says this. He says, everyone who sets wages has an obligation to keep his employees from living on the edge of hunger or illness, if we have authority over wages and benefits or if we serve in the field of public policy, we should promote policies that ensure justice for laborers. A- and maybe for you, the only oversight you have over anyone's salary or wages are things like babysitting or yard care or uh, house cleanings or small construction projects, things of that nature. Or, right, or in regards to, to tipping staff. You, you, you might not know this. I didn't know this until somewhere in my 20s, right? Uh, but the minimum wage for a waiter is just $2.13, that's it, per hour. Um, there is this legal assumption that they are going to make enough money and tips to make up that difference uh, that they're not getting. And I know that mostly because Laura, my wife, uh, waited tables in college, and, and, and sadly, <clears throat> she, she confirms that it's absolute reality, not just a general statement that people make, but the after-Sunday uh, Sunday worship Christians, right, Those, the ones that would go out to eat after afterwards, I see you shaking your head back They're like, yeah, that's reality. Uh, right? They were notorious for skipping, for tipping nothing or very little at all, that, that the waiters and wait staff would not make anything at all. It, it shouldn't be that way. Right? I mean, we, we ought to be the type of people that, <clears throat> if we're going to go out and eat and do this, that we're going to be generous in that way, that they're like, yay, you know, I have Christians at my table, they're going to tip me well. Now, um, do, do you have a good sense of of what finances are like for other people in the, in the culture around us I, I don't know that i i generally do i am getting a little better and, and and hear me out i'm about to say something here and i don't want you to like paint a picture of me that's wrong there are uh there are good reasons that we should not distribute all income equally i am not suggesting that even a little bit not even a tad bit uh, i give this only for the sake of perspective that it helps us kind of understand things but if you took all the income that was made this year in the United States and you distributed it evenly across every adult person, whether high school dropout or uh, MD doctor, right, that, that would equa- uh, equate to $76,000 per person is what you get, every individual. Now, now, to put that in perspective, a full-time employee, 40 hours a week, making, say, $15 an hour, um, uh, would make $31,000 a year is what they'd, they'd be living on. Uh, which is quite a bit less. Only, only here's the thing, $15 an hour is not what minimum wage is in our state in this time and day, right? It's, it's, it's less than half of that. It's $7.25 is minimum wage, which puts a full-time salary of 40 hours a week at minimum wage, uh, a little over $15,000 uh, that someone would have to live on. Now, now for us to, to not want to bless the poorest of workers today, that's a denial both of God's law and, and just the general graciousness of God to us in, in all aspects of our life. Now, this is why I'm saying this. Bottom line is this. When, when it's in your power, be fair and generous. I won't tell you how much, what it looks like, but to be aware of these kind of things, when it's in your pow- power, to be fair and, and generous. <clears throat> and then uh, verse 6 is, is, he's talking about murder here. It's, it's in the sense of, of keeping money needed for survival, right? James is calling out these rich folks again for that. His point that is in their poverty, they have no ability to even resist you. <clears throat> right, what, what's been done to them. Um, <clears throat> so then as I, as I bring all this to a close, let me, let me tell you this. I, I have seen great wealth and great love for God. Great wealth and great love for God. I have seen them dwell in unity together to coexist, and it is an absolutely beautiful thing to see. It's rare, but it's beautiful when you see it. Uh, we, we as a church have benefited from this sort of, of unity in the form of uh, initially, right, an extremely rich donor who was able to help us. Uh, really, we didn't even know the guy. He just had a lot of money, and he wanted to see PCA churches get planted and RUF campus ministries get, get started. And so he was really helpful to, to the Dunnings and us uh, in, in getting this started. Now, we continue to see uh, it in your generosity month after month and, and, and what we need and what's being provided for, and we are so grace, gra- gracious for that, uh, grateful for that. Uh, but let me let me give you a few bits of application now. First of all, Again, coming back to us, money is not the problem. It, it's not the problem. Rather, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, the problem is when your heart loves money. Right? When it loves money instead of God or when it loves money more than God, if you want to put it that way, that, that's where the problem is. Now, I personally, I love tortilla chips. I don't know if this is normal, but if I go out to the Mexican restaurant, I just start eating the tortilla chips. And when the basket gets empty, they bring another one. I don't stop. I just keep eating more chips, right? I'm never satiated. I'm never satisfied. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in 5.10, I really, this is how I relate this, right? He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, right? And so if, if you happen to have, someone's just going to bring you basket after basket of more money, more money, more money. If that's what you love, you're never actually going to be satisfied with that. And there's this thought here, right? Is, is, is that how it is for you? Is that how you relate to money? Do you always want money? And, and I think we must admit, right, we aren't immune to this love of money that we see here. We're certainly all tempted to at least use whatever wealth we do possess to be self-indulgent uh, or, or to just get what we want in any way that it, it is helpful to that, maybe even at the expense of others that we want to gain that. Now, now last week I said your schedule speaks you know, wonders and it speaks about what is important to you, right? This is even more true about the way we spend our money, right? If we could go through and, and just itemize everything that we spend our money on, it begins to tell us, right? It tells us, are we the type that are hoarding it? Are we the type that are spending it uh, mostly just on ourselves or all on ourselves? Uh, and, and so I encourage you so we take a moment this week to examine your wealth. Are, are you hoarding it? And don't be over critical on yourself. Maybe you're not. Hallelujah. That's a work of the Lord in your life. Good for you, good, not for good for you, but good for the Lord doing that in your life. Now, you're right, ask the question, are you using it only for luxury and self-indulgence? Right, that's one that's I, I feel like gets me somewhat. Because we kind of have this, this pool of money that's, that's like our own personal money, and I tend to think like, okay, so that's just for me to buy cool stuff for me on. Uh, and I, I think that's that struggle, right? Is that the only way I'm willing to spend that sort of money? In what definable ways are you using money to love others, to help others, to serve the Lord? I mean, can you answer that? And hopefully you can. And again, like if that's the case... Praise the Lord for that. But if not, let that be a challenge to you. Also examine your attitude. Are you stingy with money or do you want to bless those who have you know, done work for you or people who just have less than you? Christian, you need to know this, right? You, you live for God. You belong to the Lord, not, not to wealth. You don't live for wealth. wealth. Wealth is not evil, but it cannot be your primary goal in life. If your primary goal in life is to know and, and serve the Lord, it can't be to, to know and collect money, right? Right? And, and so let us live out the conviction that riches of this age are fleeting and that our, our life with God is forever. I think that's where we are able to put that dagger in the love of wealth, right? And and maybe that means that you need to loosen your grip on money, loosen your, your grip on possessions. And and Christian, let's not envy the wealthy unbelievers that we see, right? It, it might look great from the outside. they They seem to have it all, but... But, but understand this and keep this in the forefront of your mind. They, they lack the one thing they really need. They lack the one thing money cannot buy them. The one thing that God has already freely and graciously given you in Christ. The, the one thing that will never corrode, that will never rot, that will not be evidence against you. Right? You possess something far greater than money. You, you possess salvation that you have received freely in the gospel. Value that. Value that rightly as the the one truly incorruptible thing that you possess. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God Almighty, as we live in the midst of a money-loving culture, give us a better love. Um, A love for you, for each other, for our neighbors, and even our enemies. Father, we don't want to walk out of here with just guilt. Right? And so we ask that you would just give us encouragement to to go in the right direction, not to to carry guilt. Holy Spirit, strengthen us to joyfully not hoard earthly treasures, but to trust in you as our true source and joy and security. Forgive us for the times and the ways that we have pursued worldly gain at the expense of others. Teach us to be godly and wise stewards of the blessings that you have entrusted to us. Give us generous and compassionate hearts and guide us away from the allure of material possessions that fade away and instead fix our eyes on the eternal riches found in a relationship with You. And may our lives be a testament to to Your love and grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.